just get this. We're waiting for the stragglers. Uh, some have asked me just to repeat again the books that I was referring to, recommending. The book on male depression is called Unmasking Male Depression. Let me add that not every male has the characteristic anger, violence sort of uh, response. There are some males who are more normal <laughs> who experience de or manifest depression, show the symptoms of depression in the more classic way as, as in uh, typical female depression. I, I happen to believe that the way women experience depression is the natural way but that somehow men shaped in their early life to be, you know, you've got to grin and bear it, you've got to be tough. If I cried, my father would give me such a spanking. It just isn't true because he, he believed that crying should be spanked out of a boy. So it wasn't until I was in my mid-40s that I discovered the precious preciousness of crying. And even as I speak, sometimes I tear up and all that. And that's a great freedom that I got. But, but because of the way boys were shaped, are shaped in socially, the only way they can manifest some of the pain of depression is through stuffing it down, is through masking it, is through finding other things to, to, to compensate for it. And so I, I happen to believe that the rage factor in male depression is, is a, really an artifact, a consequence of the way we have raised boys. But not all men have gone down that road, and some do manifest it in the more traditional way. But my book is uh, uh, Unmasking Male Depression. The, 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 the book for women is Unveiling Depression. This is unmasking, <laughs> big. Unveiling, just like we pull away a little, <laughs> pull apart the curtain just a little bit. Uh, uh, unveiling Depression in Women. And then the third book is on uh, depression in teenagers. Uh, and that's called uh, Stressed or Depressed. And while you're writing it down, my new book that will be coming out early September is called Thrilled to Death. And that uh, it will be some of the, what I'm going to be sharing this evening uh, is covered in, 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 in that book. <clears throat> I, I talked about uh, endogenous depression this morning and exogenous or reactive depression this morning and uh, made the comment that by and large uh, reactive depression is, is not treated by medication. Now I need to, to qualify that. Um, sometimes your doctor or whoever is, even your psychiatrist, in reactive depression may recommend, say, an antidepressant. In other words, or, or some other medication. In other words, there may be symptoms you're experiencing that can be relieved with various other medications as well. But while you're in the early stages of reactive depression, which is a grief response, and I'm hoping that in the second half of this afternoon, I want to talk about that depression. Uh, Rick did a great job this morning in describing his own experience of it. The, the losses in life that we really need to to, to know how to grieve. Um, wh wh while you're in that reactive depression phase, 
If that reactive depression is not resolved, if your grieving isn't done, if, or as in my own case, in my childhood, I suffered so many losses early in my life, but by the time I became an early adult, I couldn't take another loss. It just put me in a deep reactive depression. And the trouble is that those reactive depressions are significantly deeper than is appropriate for the loss you experienced. You know, I, I, I saved up my money to buy my first camera. It was a Pentax single lens reflex. Beautiful camera. And I had it for a couple of months and one day I moved and I bumped it accidentally and it fell on the floor and it crashed. And I wanted, I wasn't a crying mood in those days, I wasn't able to cry much, but I just wanted to sob and sob and sob and sob and sob. Because, you see, now every loss, you were, you've had a lot of losses early in your life, then now every loss that comes now in your life is compounded by the others. So you reach back and you, you, you collect all those losses and, and, you know, this is one more loss and you pile the whole lot on your depression. We call that compounding. Now, the problem with reactive depression is that if it continues like that and continues to build, doesn't get resolved, you don't get your grief taken care of, then that depression becomes a stressor. <clears throat> Pushes your cortisol up. Before you know it, you've also got endogenous depression and reactive depression. Call that a double depression. So now you need the medication to take care of the endogenous depression and you really need the psychotherapy or counseling, good grief counseling, to take care of the reactive depression. And it, it gets more complicated, you see. The medication by itself isn't going to resolve the issue because you're still prone to, you're sensitized to loss. You can't handle any loss. You're one more disappointment, you know, you feel like you're going to go to pieces. I come back in a little while to talk about why psychotherapy is important in all depressions, including endogenous depression. No longer do we believe it. It's just a pill that takes care of endogenous depression. No longer do we believe that. If I recommend to someone they go and see the doctor and get an antidepressant and don't also recommend psychotherapy, I'm, I could be sued for malpractice. The research is clear, absolutely clear, that medication on its own for endogenous depressions, medication that's on for endogenous depression, only has about an effective rate of 56%. That's 56, 60%. That's, all it, that's the best you can hope for just with medication. Psychotherapy by itself in endogenous depression, what percentage do you, do you think you can get? 56, 60%. Same, same as medication. There's no difference between psychotherapy and medication if they're given on their own. The, the advantage of medication is it, it, it quickly takes care of the problem. Whereas if you do psychotherapy, it's going to take six months before you've learned enough you know, how stupid you are and change your lifestyle and all the rest of it. It's, in other words, psychotherapy is as effective as medication, just takes longer before it takes effect. But combine medication and psychotherapy and endogenous depression jumps to 86-90%. Okay? 
That is a very important point. Now, what does psychotherapy do? Well, there's a particular type of psychotherapy that is almost universally now the recommended psychotherapy with depression. And that's, it's called CBT, or Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. And many of you have asked me about it, so I know that you know all about CBT. Because the, the research is showing that's the only effective psychotherapy for depression. Because it, it gets to the thinking process, gets to the negative th negativity that is so pervasive in depression and, and, and helps to deal with that issue. But that's only one side of it. In my book, what, psych what the psychotherapy also does, it, it lowers the stress. When I can go and see a counselor on a regular basis and I can talk about the stresses in my life, just talking about them reduces my stress. It lowers my cortisol, to put it bluntly. I, I wish I could do a study. When you come into therapy, let me just take a, take a measure of your cortisol level. Just got to spit on a little Q-tip and I'll put it in a tube and send it off for a test. Or, and so when you come into psychotherapy, I want to measure your cortisol level. And when you leave psychotherapy, I want to measure your cortisol level. And I will bet you, I'm, I'm not really a betting man, but I am prepared to bet every English coin I have in my pocket. <laughs> now, the trouble is they feel heavy, <laughs> they're probably not worth very much, but I'm prepared to bet you that that research would show that that psychotherapy session has helped to bring down your cortisol. Makes sense. Now, hopefully it's, it's good therapy. I, I, there are some types of psychotherapy that won't do that, but I'm not, gonna, I'm not going there right, right at this minute. But, but I do want to emphasize that no longer are we saying I'm talking about we in the professional world, physicians and psychiatrists and mental health workers. No longer are we saying that medication on its own is the only way to go with endogenous depression. And medication may be necessary in reactive depression, if only to prevent the damage that the stress that, psycho, that, that, endogenous, uh, that reactive depression is causing. Depression is a stressor. Do you know that 50% of people with major depression, which is the serious clinical depression, 50% of them have enlarged adrenal glands. It's quite a shocking discovery. So what's happening, you see, when you're depressed is your adrenal glands are trying to compensate, trying to boost your, your stimulation level. And as a result, the adrenal gland just actually gets bigger. Now we can do MRIs very easy. I'm close to Caltech. We can run down there, but student who works there, we can get MRIs done and stuff. Adrenal glands are getting bigger because they are adapting to the higher demand. And we, we are designed to be adaptive, so we learn to adapt to the sort of crummy weather you get in England. <laughs> Don't even know that it's that bad. <laughs> I'm, I'm being kind, please. I'm not saying, I'm not being nasty when I say that. Anyway, <clears throat> So, I, I, I just wanted to drive home the point that while reactive depression is a grieving process and needs help in the grieving of that, if you don't deal with it, 
in a timely manner, or if you never resolve your grief and then you accumulate loss upon loss upon loss, you end up in the middle of your life and all you've got is ungrieved losses going back a century. It's going to have its effect, stress-wise. I was doing a seminar, I don't do them anymore, but every July I would go to focus on the family in Colorado Springs. Jim is a close, Dobson is a close friend of mine. And, and do a, a two-week training course for counselors, who were Christian counselors, psychologists and others, who would come for a two-week intensive training. And I'd go and, I'd, I'd go and talk about depression and update them on counseling in, in, in that area. And I remember one, one occasion, quite a big group, about 200 come every year, and I, I was talking about the grieving process and that, that particular session, I really did pour a lot into helping uh, these counselors get the issue of, of reactive depression. That grief is still a major source of depression. Yeah, because uh, quite frankly, the, the mental health field is losing that. I think I am the only person writing in this area today that still has a chapter in there about reactive depression. Because to, the, the, the domination of the, the drug companies as such as to sort of turn everybody's attention to the medication. Now that's important, don't misunderstand me. But we must understand that there's a lot of depression that's just re related to our losses. And while I was speaking, at, getting these counsels up to date, there was a lady in a wheelchair, and because she couldn't sit in the regular seats, she was on the side there and she was in a wheelchair I, I put her at about 35 and as I was talking about losses I shared you know every loss that is not grieved gets filed away somewhere in the back of your mind only to be resuscitated at a later date ungrieved losses accumulate and talking about that and during the break she was sitting there, she was just sobbing, 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 sobbing. So I stopped my presentation, said, let's take a break. So I could just go and sit down and talk to her. At age 19, she, had, she dived into a swimming pool, typical accident, spinal accident, bent her head, snapped her spine, and just paralyzed, you know. And she said, you know what, I'm now 35, 36. I have never grieved that loss. I've pushed it out of sight. I've tried to just overcome it, you know, mind over matter, uh, whatever you want to call it. We were not designed to deal with losses that way. That's not our God. Ecclesiastes 3, there is a time to be sad. It's a time to be sad. Jesus wept. He wept. It's a time for weeping. Because that is part of the process of letting go. And, and I'm going to come back to that, but wanted to put it in that context. Now, let me, um, let me turn now to make some comments about female depression. Because this is important information that I'm, I'm trying to give you now. That we, we now know, have known for 10 years, although it gets out very little. I don't hear it out there. I have many physician friends. They don't know about it. Uh, uh, they, it, it, it seems to have just bypassed them. 
But there is something called the... Uh, I should turn my PowerPoint on. That'll help, won't it? Okay. There is something called... Uh, may I just get my pointer? I, I think it's in the front of my case. Mm-hmm. Can't find it. So, it, <clears throat> um, right at the top, the, fir- the first line there, and, and, and you have it in your outline, so so you can follow follow along in the the outline. But but the, f- the first thing you need to understand about female depression is something called the estrogen serotonin dance. Now, serotonin is one of the major neurotransmitters. A neurotransmitter is simply a messenger. It's all about sending messages. It's all about communication. You know. uh, IT managers and so on, we can have a ball here because it's all about messages going backwards and forwards. That's how the brain works. There's nothing but that. And one of the neurotransmitters that facilitates the passage of these messages, these signals, these that go down the nerves is called serotonin. And these days, everybody knows what serotonin is. I, you should know, anyway. That's one of the... There are two others important ones. One's called norepinephrine and one called dopamine, but we'll come back to that. But serotonin, for example, is, is particularly important for women because there is a relationship, a built-in relationship, between serotonin and estrogen. Now, listen to this. I said that women run at double the risk of depression to men. But that only applies in the childbearing years. Before puberty and after menopause, men and women do not differ in the incidence of depression. And the reason is the estrogen factor. Uh, this is important information for men to understand. Because a long time we sort of, men scoffed at that monthly time when women were, you know, tense and anxious and depressed. There's premenstrual dysphoria or depression or tension that it was called. And, and even considered it to be a, a neurotic disorder. I, I, I can remember the time when, when premenstrual dysphoria was considered to be a neurotic disorder. In other words, it's just sort of, you know, a little bit gone wrong up top there, upstairs. Well, now we know it differently. We know that it's a biological phenomenon. Estrogen levels will fluctuate through the monthly cycle. As you go towards the menstruation, estrogen level drops. It also drops after childbirth, and then, of course, it drops again. And uh, as you start perimenopause, it starts to decline, and, and eventually, uh, uh, you know, it's reduced considerably. But whenever estrogen level drops, it is like a, a cord links it with serotonin levels. So when estrogen goes down, so does serotonin levels go down. The expression they use in, in medicine is that these, they dance together. Wherever the one goes, the other goes. Estrogen driving it. 
So there was a time before um, uh, hormone replacement therapy, estrogen replacement therapy, when, it, when that was still permissible. Now it's not because of the cancer risk. When they were, we were using hormone replacement, estrogen replacement, to treat depression. Because if we can get the estrogen level back up, we can get the serotonin level back up. And it was sometimes a lot easier from a biological perspective to do that. But the point is, whenever that estrogen level drops, so does serotonin level. Now, that would not be a problem if it were not for the stress factor. Because now, if you're starting with stress, serotonin is depleted. Now, when it gets pulled down, the estrogen level pulls it below a certain threshold. You know, and when it goes below the threshold, then the depression auger comes into play. And that's why it can fluctuate. When women are under high stress, it gets worse. And it can be so bad that if you then have a child, you're at a greater risk for postnatal depression. I mean, that can be a terrible thing. You all know about the uh, Yates, uh, what was her name? Andrea Yates in the United States, drowned all her children. We interviewed her uh, a year later, her husband, when I was still executive editor, editor for the American Association of Christian Counselors and published uh, some of the interviews with him to try and get to understand this. But it's a terrible thing. Uh, women have murdered their children because it, it, it is so crazy-making. So now in your premarital counsel, counseling with young couples, you better warn every one of them that the risk of postnatal depression is very high. Make sure you get some help for it. Take, take it up with your gynecologist. Make sure you, you get it out in the open. Because you can protect yourself against that, you see. But every time estrogen comes down, the stress is now so bad that it's dropping below the threshold. And this is becoming a more and more critical thing. So, in summary, what I'm saying is that in women, we have this additional factor that has to be considered. And stress management then becomes even more crucial, ladies. And, and men, please, you've got to be more understanding. This is a time when you shouldn't, you know, turn your back or go into one of your moods give the silent treatment, pull away. You know, this is a time when you can show that you're a real man with feeling and you know, understanding and, 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 and move in to, to be more supportive of your, uh, of your spouse. Um, Just a few thoughts on why male depression is misdiagnosed. Uh, I, I, think, I think I may have said most of this. Uh, I'm looking to see if there's anything new there. The symptom clusters for men are still being ignored by physicians. I want to make that common. I know we have some physicians here. so I, 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 It is important that, that we are aware of the fact that when we're seeing anger or just irritability, and especially if we're seeing rage, we, the red flag must go up on the, on the issue of, of depression. Uh, women feel their depression, men act it out. 
Maldepression is less sadness and more irritability and aggression based. And of course many angry abusive men are in fact suffering from depression. And, uh, and you, you diagnose it better by looking at the behaviors. Sadness, by the way, is the least important symptom of depression. Least important. <clears throat> now, what I've put up uh, for you here and what you have on your outline, uh, in, 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 with regard to the treatment of depression, um, I've, I've, I've listed for you what are the four most valid predictors. I'm, my, my understanding of a group like this is you work not just for yourself, but you're also working with other men and being in contact with them. Uh, and other women, I mean, with, with those who are depressed. And it might be helpful uh, for you to know, what do we look for in the pattern of depression that indicates that medication is probably necessary? So let me go through these, and I'm, I hope that this will, be, uh, will inform you uh, and, and, and make you a little bit more competent uh, to, to, to you know, approach your mail and say, you know what, I think... I think you need to go and get some help here. So here are the four uh, uh, most valid predictors that we use in mental health field for, de for, for determining whether medication could. Of course, you don't have to necessarily have all of these or any one of them. Sometimes we do what we call a diagnosis by trial medication. We recommend someone to go to the, his or her doctor and say, could you put me on a trial, please? of an antidepressant. It's diagnosis by trial medication. Sometimes the best way to diagnose it is try it and see if it works. I can assure you, if, if you don't have the, the problem, it's not going to make any difference. It's going to be like a vitamin. You're just going to pass it off. But, but at least it's worth a try. And as, as several of you have talked to me and that's been my strategy with you. Go, go give it a try. But as I will, will I make clear in a moment, a trial must be for at least eight weeks. And you must take it every single day. Otherwise, it's not a trial. And then we'll see the reasons for that in a moment. But here are the most four valid predictors. The top of the list. This one is now the most important of all. And, and these pretty much cut across gender. So what I'm talking about now is, uh, would be important for both, for both gender. First one is something called anhedonia. Now, you're going to hear a lot more about anhedonia because the book I've got coming out in September is all about anhedonia. And, and, and it's a mantra you need to, when you go to sleep at night to say anhedonia, anhedonia, just so you get it in your brain. It, it, it means, as is obvious from the label, hedonia, hedonism, pleasure. And no, so no pleasure. And basically what it means is that one is unable to experience pleasure out of the ordinary, simple things of life. So when a man says to me, you know what, I used to get so much pleasure out of that uh, motorcycle I bought, you know, and it was, for me it was a freeing thing, I, the wind passing. I have a son-in-law who recently acquired his Harley Davidson motorcycle. You know, it's that stage of life. It's, it's that midpoint. 45, 50 stage where you're, you're trying to figure out life. And, All right, I'll buy a motorcycle. 
Now, I was trying to tell him that he's actually depressed. That's why he's buying the motorcycle. Now, a Harley Davidson is the surest sign of depression when you might buy it at age 45, I, I, as anything I know. Uh, well, I, I did get him to go and see a, see a, a, a doctor, and, and, and in fact, he took me seriously. But the, the fact is, what was he looking for, first of all? He was looking for something to boost his pleasure. Secondly, when, I, yes, when someone comes to me and says, you know, I bought a motorcycle six months ago, and for a few months, it really, I just got a lot of pleasure. When, when my stress was out of, out of bounds, when people, you know, I was going crazy, I just get on my motorcycle. There's a well-known uh, American preacher, um, what's his name now, who used to go and hit his motorcycle, became president of Dallas Seminary. Uh, it, it'll come to me. But, but at any rate... <clears throat> the, when, when his person like that says to me you know what I bought my motorcycle oh and it gave me so much pleasure but do you know for the last three months I get no pleasure out of that thing I don't want to see it don't want to go near it I think anhedonia something's happened to his pleasure system anhedonia is a disruption of the pleasure system in the brain I'm going to say more about it tonight because it's very strongly connected with addictions. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm not a specialist in substance addictions, but hidden addictions, behavior addictions, that's, my, that's, that's an area that I know about. But when your ability to experience pleasure has been numbed, often also the expression is, I feel bored, I'm bored with life. When you can't get enthused about it. This is anhedonia. And as I will show this evening, there is now, going along with the depression epidemic, there is now an epidemic of anhedonia. And there's a, a group, there's a group of depressions now that are called, this is what they're being called. No one's come up with a label for them, but they are called non-sadness depressions. You get it? Where the symptom is no pleasure. Nothing gives pleasure anymore. I hear from pastors all the time, they, they, something like, yeah, I don't know, I don't know what, something's clearly wrong here, but you know, I no longer get any pleasure in God. Don't get any pleasure in what I do. I go and I do it, but there's no pleasure there. And then when they say something like, I don't get pleasure in my wife, in my kids, you know, you've got a serious problem of anhedonia. So what is emerging now is this very significant interruption. And there literally is, an, there is a center in the brain for pleasure. We'll talk about it this evening. And the pathways to that pleasure are being dysregulated, blocked. And anhedonia is the cardinal symptom of depression whether sadness is there or not, and needs medication. This is not something you can fight with sheer you know, willpower. The second one is psychomotor agitation or retardation. Here it's not so much a pleasure feeling problem as it is an energy problem like fatigue 
would, would, would fall into this. Profound fatigue. Oh, I, you know, I usually have lots of energy, but the last two months, I, I can't get out of bed. Yeah, I can hardly move an arm. The lawn needs mowing. I just can't, I just can't get myself up to it. That's, that's the psychomotor uh, uh, retardation. A vegetative. Sit in front of a TV and all you can do is say to your wife, Honey, please pass me the clicker. <laughs> you just have to have the energy to go and fetch it for yourself. I usually advise the wife, No, don't do that. You, 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 you let him get it for himself. But, or the other extreme is less common, that is agitated. Now, in agitation, the agitation is not there in the afternoon, it's there in the morning. One of the things I learned in, in the psychiatric hospitals I trained in is that you always go and see these patients first thing in the morning. Because if you want to see agitation, that's when you'll see it. You're not going to see it in the afternoon. So agitation, you really have to ask, are you, do you wake up, are you agitated in the morning when you wake up? That, but, but more commonly, it's this retardation, this profound fatigue that responds to the medication the, the third uh, valid predictor for good medication response are sleep disturbances sleep disturbances some antidepressants the older ones called tricyclics were actually are very helpful in in sleep disorders and uh, there's one of them called Elevil that that often I've recommended uh, to a client to go and ask their physician uh, because it's, it, it's very helpful in, in, in sleep. It's better than a sleeping pill. Never take a sleeping pill unless you absolutely have to. It's because that's an anesthetic. Not a, you don't get sleep, you get anesthesia. And when I had my you know, bypass surgery, uh, that, I, I didn't wake up and stretch and say, oh, what a nice sleep I had. You know, it wasn't that at all. It was anesthesia. That's not sleep. But some of, some, of, some of the antidepressants are very effective and they produce a true sleep. They, in fact, enhance the sleep process rather than retard it. But sleep disturbances. And the year it, it gets a little complicated because sometimes uh, you have problems falling asleep sleep onset. Sometimes you have termination on insomnia, where you're waking up early and can't get back to sleep. Sometimes you can't get out of bed, you want to sleep all the time. So it gets complicated, but any change in your sleeping pattern, not on its own, but with, with some of these other characteristics, is, is a good sign. Medication, this is the medications that work, this is when medications will work well. Because it's, 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 it's all coming from the same problem. Now, the last one is, 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 is quite important. It's quite important. Called the diurnal variation in mood. Diurnal means the daily cycle. What happens through the day? Diurnal. Right now, <laughs> straight after our nice lunch, uh, the diurnal variation of adrenaline lowers it. And so what we want right now is not to be sitting to listening to a lecture on depression. What we want right now, our body is craving, is for that siesta. What I want is to go and lie down somewhere 
and just, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful? Come on, oh no, wouldn't it be wonderful just to be able to lie down somewhere now and feel the, 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 the waves of sleep coming upon you? I, I, you know, cultures that give into that biological dip are some of the healthiest cultures on the earth. Siesta hasn't emerged because people are lazy. It's emerged because people have listened to their bodies. And unfortunately, we haven't. I have the privilege now that I'm sort of retired, that uh, I, 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 I enjoy my afternoon nap. And so does my, my little dog, my little puppy, <laughs> Andy. I'm, I'm going to show you a picture of Andy sometime. But little Andy, and you know what? He, he knows the routine. And as soon as we've had some lunch, there's some days when I've got work to do, you know, and I'm away, it's not there. But when I'm home, as soon as I finish lunch, he runs to the bedroom door and goes, <laughs> and calls me, you know. And I say, all right, Andy, I'm coming. And I said, okay, come on, it's our time for siesta. And I lie down on the bed, and he jumps up on the bed, and he, he cuddles in alongside me and puts his head right here. I tell you, he's only, he's a mix between a chihuahua and a dashwant. I'll show you a picture. And uh, here's my buddy. I mean, I have, we've had dogs all our lives with the kids, but this has been my dog. And I bonded with him. And he literally lies here, puts his head here. He gives a sigh. <sighs> And he's out. <laughs> and he's out. And uh, it, it, it... Now, the diurnal variation in mood is very important indicator. The endogenous depressions get worse with sleep. The reactive depressions get better with sleep. Do you get it? Because the, di the, 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 uh, the endogenous is a biological phenomenon. And when you sleep, your adrenaline drops. And when your adrenaline drops, it's very difficult for the body to get it going again. So it shuts down. And when you get up in the morning, it's why you can't get out of bed. You've just got no energy. So in... In endogenous depressions, you feel worse in the morning. And as the day progresses, your adrenal system recovers and you begin to feel better. And by the evening, you might even feel like there's no depression. That's deceptive. Because the moment you go to bed, to sleep, it's back again. So, a, a, a classic story that I, a, I, I could hear from a patient goes something like this. Oh, you know, Dr. Hart, when, when I'm, you know, in the evening, I feel so good. I, I feel my energy is back. I really feel like life is, is great again. But I come to realize, I know, I know that when I go to bed and I sleep, oh, tomorrow morning when I wake up, it's all going to be gone. So, you know what? I, I try not to go to bed. I try to stay up. I try to stay awake. Now, that story spells out loud and clear endogenous depression. 
because that pattern is so classic that if it's there, you know the medication's going to be very helpful. Now, reactive depression is the exact reverse. In reactive depression, you wake up in the morning, you feel wonderful. Sleep is good for the grieving process. It's, it's good, as we'll see tomorrow. I'm going to, I'm going to give you a, a brief lecture in the, the architecture of sleep. I don't know how we can live without knowing what sleep does and how it works. But, but one of the things that happens in sleep is every time you dream, the brain does its forgetting. Just a little bit. That's when we forget. You go to bed, you've studied all day, you go to bed, you have a sleep, you have a good sleep. During the dream cycle, you lose everything you study. I, I, I tell students about this all the time, you know. So you, you've got to do something to make sure it stays there because during sleep, we, the dream cycle is when we forget. And this can have repercussions, you see. But for reactive depression, it helps just let things go a little bit. So you feel a little better. You wake up in the morning, you feel better. As the day progresses, it's like you rediscover the loss. You are reminded of it. And in reactive depression, the worst time of the day is the evening. You, if, if you've, Pastor, if you've, if you've uh, worked with anyone who has been bereaved, you know that the night time is the worst time. And I always tell my, you know, you know my family or any friends uh, or any of my clients that, that, that are going through a grieving process or know of someone, is, if you're going to call, call in the evening. No point in calling in the morning. They'll be okay. But it's evening, and that's when they need that, that touch, that, that little bit of comfort in the evenings. To give you an example, my middle daughter, I think I mentioned that her husband was killed about 12 years ago on a, in a car accident. Did I mention that? Yeah. <clears throat> about, oh, three months after the Richard was buried, my daughter trying to get her life back in order again, she came over one day to, to chat and she said, you know, Dad, it's a strange thing that's, that's sort of happening. And I, I wake up in the morning, I leave my curtains open, I get a view of the San Gabriel Mountains right out from my bedroom window. And I wake up in the morning and I stretch and I look out that window and the sun is shining. I hear the birds singing and oh, it is so glorious, it's so wonderful. I just say to God, oh God, thank you for another day. This is, this is so marvelous, this is so wonderful, you know. And then I remember. And then I remember. It, it's almost as if in grief, we have to rediscover the loss every morning. The realization of it all comes flooding back again. See, unlike the biochemical disruption that is there, whether we awake or sleep, the emotion of grief subsides during sleep. I think this is one of the comforting things about sleep built into us. Sleep actually helps the grieving process actually helps it. But then my daughter couldn't understand why for that brief, it could be five minutes or ten minutes before she fully realizes, you know, that she's got this wonderful feeling and everything feels so happy and good 
glorious. And I just praise God for this wonderful, wonderful day. And then I remember. And then from then on, it's sort of downward toward the evening. Now that's reactive depression. Now obviously, one needs to deal with that grief because prolonged it can turn into stress and, and endogenous. Now, let me just say one last thing about the treatment of depression. And this is a, again, I want to underscore it. It's a very important point. In both forms of depression, getting help quickly is crucial. In reactive depression, you want to avoid that experience of loss becoming a permanent thing. You, you want to avoid it becoming so entrenched in your memory as to always be something traumatic. And you can never grieve by yourself. We were not designed that way. Grieving is best done in dialogue with another. Now, I'm not talking professional counseling. Most grieving doesn't need that. But, but people in grief want and need to talk. I call it externalizing. Externalizing. I'm going to say a word about externalizing. Rick's heard me do this, but I, but I think it's worth my sharing it again. There is something... In, in my and in our design that when I talk things out, when I externalize it, when I share it, or when I write it, not necessarily writing, journaling, is a very powerful healing factor. But when I write it or journal it, what, what, you see, what happens if when I'm just thinking about something silently, it actually remains fairly localized in one part of the brain. It just goes round and round in that one little corner there. It stays there. It's going round, round and round, 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 round. We call that obsession. When so we you know, just go round and round and round. I can't get the thing out of my head and it's not going anywhere. It's just round and round. I, I, I know this well because often I have to write computer programs for my research. And when you get stuck with a bug in a program... And I sit there and thinking about, trying to think it, I, I'm trying to think it through, I'm trying to figure out, well, you know, just doing this, and I'm trying to think it out, and it doesn't work, so I've learned, I learned quickly, go to bed, have a good night's sleep, and the next morning, I go and look for one of my colleagues, a friend. I got a particular friend at Fuller, one of the faculty, he's also retired now, Newton Maloney is his name, Newton, I say, Newton, no, Newton, please, Newton, please, just sit down a moment, I need you. I need to explain to you, I've got a bug in this computer program, and I need someone to talk to about it. Maloney says, I know nothing about computer programming. You know, you're wasting your time. Look, I'm not wanting your advice. I want you to be a listener. <laughs> listening, 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 okay? Do you get it? You're a psychologist. Don't you know about listening? <laughs> all right, all right. So, you know, you see, Newton, I've, I've got this thing and I've got the program and it's looping here. Then at this point, it, it goes outside that loop and then, hey, thanks, buddy. I've just figured out what the problem is. And back I go. He stands there bewildered. 
by the, the moment I externalize it, two things happened. First thing, I, it went back into my brain through my ears, or if I'm journaling, through my eyes. And in so doing, since the ears and eyes sort of cross over both hemispheres, it's now available in my whole brain. And secondly, now I've, I've, I've opened up new pathways for processing the problem. See, the brain is all about pathways. And there's something about talking out. And the better the listener, the better. That does marvelous things inside the brain. And quickly, I solved that problem. Now, you know, why does psychotherapy work? Yes, I think cognitive behavior therapy gives some very practical suggestions. But, you know, a much bigger factor, a, 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 a main reason why psychotherapy works is because you get to talk what's going on inside while someone listens and you listen to yourself. And that brings profound changes. Uh, uh, Freud's daughter, Dr. Anna Freud, once visited the United States years ago. And she was at a cocktail party and all sorts of people were there and she had become a renowned psychoanalyst. And there's a, a lady there, an American lady, who desperately wanted some help. So she finally walked up and got close to Anna Freud and then started to talk and I said, Dr. Freud, now listen, I have this problem, maybe you can help me. But I, 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 and then she started to relate her struggle, you know. And Anna Freud stood there and she just nodded her head, you know. And then finally the lady she took her hand and said, oh, thank you, thank you so much. You've been so helpful. And then walked away. And a friend of Dr. Freud's came up and in German asked her, what was that all about? And in German she replied, I have no idea because I can't speak English. <laughs> but uh, it appears that that lady was healed right there and then, you know, whatever it is. It, it, the value of externalizing in the grieving process and in other areas as well. It's also true for anxiety. It's true for your anger. If you're angry, find someone to talk about it. Getting it out, you hear it, see it if you journal it, writing, and it comes back and goes into a much larger part of your brain. Now, any delay in getting treatment creates what is called a kindling effect. Kindling, any Boy Scouts here? I remember as a Boy Scout, and one of, one of the badges you get is lighting fires with one match. You had to light a fire with one match. Now, the only way to do that is to make sure you get little pieces of tiny twigs. You weren't allowed paper. So you get very tiny twigs, right? And then little bigger twigs. And then and finally, uh, you know, you've got some big wood on top of it. You make sure you start. That, that kindling, it's called, starts the fire. Now, that phrase has been used in psychiatry to refer to the fact that untreated depression has a kindling effect in the brain. It makes depression easier to start the next time. The brain is always making connections. And a depressed brain is making depression connections. 
So if a child, one, one of my areas of research is childhood depression, diagnosing childhood depression. I've developed some laboratory techniques for doing that. And I consider it to be important, to be important because if you have a child who is depressed, or a teenager is depressed, and they're not going to get help for that, treatment for that, in their immediate future. Their kindling is going to be very profound. And they could be a chronic depression sufferer. One of the 10% who can respond to no medication or treatment. And it all has to do with the sooner the better. So in depression, the sooner you treat it, the better. The sooner you treat it, the better. Uh, just, we're going to take a break in a few minutes. I want to uh, say something about uh, how antidepressants work. And um, then we, we'll, we'll take a short break. And then I want to move into the uh, topic of grief or reactive depression. This picture is not in your, your, in your packet, but let me... Um, I, I wish I had my pointer, but <clears throat> if, you, if you look at that, what, this is a picture of something called a synapse. Now, in, 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 in the brain and many parts of the body, you have nerve pathways. Now, the characteristic of a nerve pathway, signals going along a nerve pathway, they have gaps. Gap is called a synapse. The synapse is like a junction point or a relay station. It rejuvenates the signal so that it goes on. But in the brain, there are zillions of these, and they are mainly junction points. So the signal is coming from the top down, you follow? And, there, and this doesn't show it, but there are other connections being made, signals coming from elsewhere. So a given synapse like this may have 100 or 200 signals coming in simultaneously, now all for a purpose. This gap is the critical issue, because... Uh, on the top side, the signal is coming down. That's the sending side. There are little things, if you look at, the, at those little cups there, this is, this is a dopamine uh, uh, synapse. So there are three of these. Dopamine is one of three. Serotonin and norepinephrine are the three there. Now, that gap there, when, when a signal comes to the sending face, they, 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 it, stored in those vesicles, they are called, is the neurotransmitter. Now, when the signal arrives at that face, it triggers a whole bunch of sprays that sprays the neurotransmitter across the gap. On the other side of the gap, you'll see there, they're called dopamine receptors. So each of these neurotransmitters has a receptor. It's a little... So the, the dopamine is shaped like a little cup. And the receptor is shaped on the reverse of the cup, so the cup actually fits over the receptor, right? And, uh, you know, thousands of times a second, hip, spray, blonk, hip, spray, blonk. And the moment the, there's enough of the receptors on, on, covered on the receiving side, the signal is sent on. Now, the neurotransmitter has done its job. It's been made, sprayed across, sent the message to the receptor. Now, where does it go? The brain is remarkably intelligent in that it recycles it. If it had to remanufacture every spray, our brain would have to be the size of this room. But it recycles. So it then collects, called reuptake, recycle, reuptake. 
collects the neurotransmitters and takes it back to the sending side to wait for the next time when it can be sprayed. So the brain only has to manufacture the little bit that is lost in the process. And a little bit is lost every time. Do you get it? Spray, cross, back, spray, cross, reuptake, spray, cross, reuptake. Now, if there is not enough neurotransmitter here, too many of those receptors are left bare. And they die. Those receptors are being renewed every 24 hours. Every 24 hours, your brain, with its zillions of synapses, their receptors are being replaced. But if there isn't enough the neurotransmitter there, they, some of them, they will die. The, 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 the replacement matches the amount of neurotransmitter. And what happens is that if the neurotransmitter becomes deficient for whatever reason, genet, genetic or cortisol blocks it. There's not enough neurotransmitter. The receptors die. Depression occurs. Now, how does the medication work? The medication does not supply the missing neurotransmitter. The, the most important neurotransmitter that, uh, that in depression is, is one called serotonin. Now, there's, been a, there's a lot of junk, uh, misleading products out there that claim to be able to boost your serotonin level, say. There's a product in the bottle. You buy this big bottle. And... The advertising implies that you drink this and you're actually feeding serotonin into your brain. Now, listen, you cannot replace the serotonin from the outside of the brain. Only the brain can make it. So, in order to make sure that... There, what, I'm, what I'm getting up, leading up to here is there is so much resistance against the treatment of depression in our evangelical circles, that we've got to understand what's going on, otherwise we cannot intelligently help people understand why they need to do it, okay? And the first thing I want to debunk is that the medication you're taking is actually being added into your brain. It doesn't do that. An antidepressant doesn't go right to the brain. It goes to the liver, where it's transformed into something else that then goes to the brain. And it doesn't go to the synapse. What it does, it goes to the recycling. So the serotonin medication, like Prozac, is called SSRI. What does it stand for? Serotonin Selective Reuptake Inhibitor. A reuptake inhibitor. What, what the medication does, it, it slows down the recycling by shutting down the recycling. The recycling is taking too much back. So if we, if we block that, we force more to stay behind. And when we force more to stay behind, the, 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 the cell gets the message we need more receptors. And so every day they're being replaced, but now they're getting the message there's more serotonin, we must make more receptors. And slowly the number of receptors gets more and more. That's the good news. The bad news, it takes anywhere from four weeks to eight weeks 
before enough of the receptors are there for the system to normalize and for the depression to lift. But before, just as we're going to take a break in a moment, but the important bit of information that I want you to grasp right now is that none of these medications actually go into the brain directly. They go into the body. The body does what it needs to transform it, and then it goes to the brain, and it, all it helps is the brain to do something that it's supposed to be doing to do it better. No, nothing, there's no outside serotonin going to the brain. Your own brain is making that serotonin. Now, that explanation changes dramatically any resistance, I think, that one could have to that. Because Scientology, let me tell you right now, Scientology is mounting a massive attack against all antidepressants. Started out with Prozac. And, and they have mounted this attack, spending millions of dollars every year to discredit antidepressants for one reason only. And that is that these medications, in helping to resolve the depressions, are drying up Scientology recruiting booths. They're losing members. So they're out to get rid of antidepressants. And then they concoct all sorts of misleading ideas. It, it, it you know, it, 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 it changes your mind. It, it, it makes you a super person. It, all it does is, is help your brain do what it's supposed to do anyway. All antidepressants are reuptake inhibitors. Slow down the, the recycling process, force more to stay behind, and then the brain will fix itself and it comes right. If you get your stress under control after a, a while, it, it, will, it will be right anyway. If there are enough receptors there anyway, the medication is not going to make any difference. It's not like tranquilizers, okay? Those are a different category. The, the, the antidepressants are unique. In my opinion, God-given. I, I thank God for antidepressants like I thank God for the skill of the surgeon who helped fix my five blockages in my heart. And I praise God for his skill every day. And so I praise God for, for uh, antidepressant medications. Because thank you, Lord, from your creation you've given us some relief. Okay, I, we're going to take a break, uh, but any questions before we break? Just uh, if there's anything I can clarify. I never know whether I've communicated it clearly or not. <laughs> some people are, and yes, yes, well, yes, that's a good question. Um, some people need to take it for the rest of their life. If you have diabetes, how long should you take insulin? Tell me, how long? Forever. Because your body's not making insulin. So, if, if your body is not producing the right amount of serotonin, and usually it's the genetic form of depression that needs a long time. Hopefully, for most, because more common depression is the stress-related one, if you get your stress under control, you should be able to come off the antidepressant. The minimum time we recommend is six months. I have more recently recommended a year. It, it, it takes a time to make lifestyle adjustments. You know that? It takes a little while. All right, was there? Yes. Is SSRIs to yes. help 
You're talking about British... In Britain, yes. Uh, um, no. No. Uh, because you've got some idiot here. <laughs> uh, there, there are issues over suicide risk, and I'm going to address that after the break. So, when you use an antidepressant in someone younger than that, it's got to be more carefully managed. You know, we, 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 we use Prozac on 12-year-olds. Now, um, A, you've got to make sure your diagnosis is right. You don't want to you know, give a child medication when you've got the wrong diagnosis. Maybe they have some physical disorder. But they, they, I know of no reason why uh, something like Prozac has, can't be used younger than, than, than 18. No. Uh, in fact, in the United States, Prozac is the only medication approved for, for teenagers. Is it? Oh, Prozac is approved for teenagers. It's the others, like oh, I see. It's the others that are blocked. Oh, I'm sorry. I misunderstood you. Now, yes, now that you're making sense. And the, and the only reason for that is because the other companies haven't been willing to spend the $800 million it takes to demonstrate that these medications are, are, are safe for children. It, it ha, it, it, it's a financial issue. I'd be, I'm, I'm honest with you now. It, that... Uh, uh, the, the manufacturers of Prozac have laid out the money to demonstrate its effectiveness and safety. Zoloft is no, much, not much different. In fact, a medication like, I'm using American words, but Selexa is even safer than Prozac. But the companies just you know, haven't been willing to cough up $800 million. That's what it costs, by the way, to, to bring a drug to the point of approval. But that doesn't mean to say doctors are not using the others because uh, certainly in the United States, physicians can prescribe anything they like. They go off-label, it's called. Hey, you take a little risk. But a lot of medications are used off-label. So there's a difference between what is officially authorized and your system may be different because of the national health system. I'm talking American system. But, but, but the answer to your question is that, that, that it's because Prozac has taken the trouble to spend the money to demonstrate the safety the others have not. But it, it, they'll come, you know, they will, they will come. Good question, thank you. Uh, okay, one, one, last one and then we'll take a break. Yeah. I'm sorry? Yes, cognitive therapy, CBT, cognitive, it's called cognitive behavioral therapy because it combines two therapies. Two forms of therapy became very popular in the early 80s. One was behavioral therapy, where you, you basically change habits. You treat the behavior. Um, if, if, you, if you smoke and you want to break the habit of smoking, you set up a, a reinforcement, a way of reinforcing you for changing. The, you, re, you change the behavior by reinforcing or not reinforcing it. When little Johnny keeps running and bringing mud into the house, you put a mat out there, he never wipes his feet. One day he comes in and he just lightly brushed with his foot. You say to him, oh, Johnny, oh, just stop a moment. I saw you there. Your feet touched that carpet. Oh, you're a good boy. Oh, I, I, you are such a lovely boy. Let me give you a hug. I tell you what, okay. Yeah, you have sixpence for an ice cream. You say, don't get, you don't get sixpence anymore. Well, 5p or whatever it is. You reinforce his... Now, he didn't do it very much. But you know what? Next time Johnny comes in, he's going to stop and wipe his feet. 
social reinforcement, very powerful. So behavior modification. Now, cognitive behavioral therapy, the other side is cognitive, where in depression, very negative feelings are quite common. You have a negative view of the past, you have a negative view of the present, you have a negative view of the future. So cognitive therapy focuses on changing your thinking. As a man thinketh, so is he. What, whatever is good and, and loving and you know, think on these things. It's, it's based on that principle. Now, when it was first invented, it was considered to be a little bit hokey. Yeah, how can you thinking? It's your brain that's the problem. How are you thinking? Do you know what? The, the research shows powerfully now that your brain can be controlled by your thinking, that the chemistry in your brain can be modified by the way you think. It's called the down-regulation uh, of, of cognition. My neurons give rise to my thoughts, the mind, and my thoughts go back to my neurons and modify them. That is now, it's called the upregulation and downregulation of cognitive cognitive functioning. Scientists no longer believe that there's a separation between the physical and the mental. That's dualistic. We've thrown out dualism. And I hope by the time I'm finished here, I will have convinced you. We don't think it. What I think is part of my brain, and my brain is part of my thinking. So when I think, I'm changing my brain. And cognitive therapy says, look, let me, let, let, let's re rephrase that. Let's reframe that. Let, let's stop catastrophizing here. Let's really look at it truthfully. Let's be honest about this. And these are techniques that shape the thinking process of the depressed person while also trying to modify their behavior. And it is powerful and, and fits in with everything we know about uh, psychoneurology, uh, and that's why it is effective. Thank you. There was one question at the back. Uh, what is? Uh, no, she's not looking at me. Sorry. Yes. Excuse me. Positive thinking. I mean, you t you, yeah. yeah. Positive thinking is a little bit hokey. You can read my book, The Success Factor. I, I take on Robert Schuller and his possibility thinking. I, I heard him uh, uh, preach once about Mary, the mother of Jesus. Do you know why she was the mother of Jesus? Because she was a possibility thinker. <laughs> my word. Mary no more wanted to be the mother, to be a mother. Remember, she was a virgin. She didn't want... Possibility... Uh, man, that's... And I think that the positive... Now, optimism, yes. A more positive outlook, yes. But by positive thinking, we have a particular sort of hokey, as if just being... If I am facing a situation where the doctor has just told me, I'm sorry, but your cancer is inoperable... No amount of positive thinking is going to be of much help. So I, 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 think, I think a biblical way is reality thinking. So, see, if, you are, if, you, if you're being honest now, maybe you can do it and, you, and you're undermining yourself. So there's a difference between positive thinking and optimism versus pessimism. But no, this, is, this goes beyond that sort of thing. It's not a positive thinking. It's honestly thinking. It's thinking, you know, it's thinking in terms of constructive ways. 
Uh, and that's why you use phrases like stop catastrophizing, um, you know, reframe that. Let, let's see if, you know, you're putting a label on it. You're calling it that. And because you call it that, you believe it is that. Now, let's go and relabel it. Now, that's not positive, you see. But it, it's more realistic, I think, that. Okay, we're going to take a five-minute break and listen for my whistle. <laughs>